1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of your co hosts, Shatranjay Mall. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Megha Vadva about her new book, Indian Migrants in Tokyo, a study of sociocultural, religious, and working worlds, which was published by Routledge in 2021. Dr. Wadhwa is a research associate at the Institute of Japanese Studies at the Free University of Berlin and a visiting fellow at the Institute of Comparative Culture at Sophia University in Tokyo. So welcome to the podcast, Megha. Our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in Japan and this research topic about Indian migrants living in Japan?
0: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So let me just tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, So I grew up in Delhi, and my first introduction to Japan was through my grandmother. And uh, she had been on a world tour. And when I asked her about a favorite country, she mentioned Japan to be uh, top on the list. So that's how I decided to learn the language. I had no plans to move to Japan. Uh, in the time when I was learning the language. And then I also started working uh, uh, for a company. So I was working for a Japanese company for a couple of years. And um, so in 2007, I was, I think a little before 2000, end of 2006, I was considering going to Australia for further studies. But my Japanese professor in India, Professor Ashok Chawla, currently he's the advisor of... uh, Uh, advisor for japan in the prime minister's office so he advised me that i should go to japan for further studies so it was my first trip abroad and uh, he believed that you know japan would be a safer country for me and because i already have been involved in the language and also uh, working for japanese company it made more sense to move to japan and then um while I was learning the language, I did many part-time jobs uh, in convenience stores, entity calling cards, and a few more. And then I switched to teaching English. And then I got off, uh, and then I got into uh, full-time teaching after I finished my Japanese language. And during the time I was teaching, um, I often felt that you know the knowledge of India amongst the Japanese students was very limited. And also I was feeling stagnant in my career. And uh, so I was enjoying teaching, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to limit myself to teaching English uh, for the rest of my life. So I decided to go back to school. And then I got in touch with Professor Viliat, Professor Seel Viliat. He's originally from India, but he also is a long term Indian resident in Japan. And he's a professor at Sofa University. So I did my master's and he was my mentor in the time. And during my master's, I was also, uh, so my master's was actually on a different topic. It was uh, focusing about the life of Indian women after marriage in India. And during my master's, I was attending other seminars. uh, And one of the seminars was of Professor Takefumita Radha. And uh, his work on Filipino community within the Roman Catholic Church in Japan inspired me to research on Indian community in the country. So like he used to talk about the problems the Filipinos face as migrants in Japan. And then I just used to wonder. And also I was connected to, you know, my experience while teaching in Japan, like how less the knowledge of India was. So all these things, you know, uh, just uh, made me choose this topic for research.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that, uh, Megha. I mean, that's a very unique um, uh, story of how your grandmother's trip sort of inspired you to study Japanese. Um, and then, you know, like you, you, your, your journey towards becoming a researcher. Um, like, uh, so thank you for sharing that. Um, so um, so we'd, I'd now like to move to talking about your new book, Indian Migrants in Tokyo. Um, so it's a it sort of comes across as simultaneously, personal and academic. Um, so how did you come to write this book? And what are the main questions that you attempt to answer through this book? And how did your background as an Indian living in Japan influence your research and writing?
0: So uh, like I also mentioned in the book that I was, uh, uh, sorry, first I should answer how did I decide to write the book? So like I had it in, the, in my mind right from the very beginning. Uh, when I was already, you know, interviewing people and everybody and I was coming across so many uh, amazing stories of people. So uh, so in from the very beginning, I did have this in my mind that I will turn my dissertation into book. And both my professor, Professor Veliet and Professor Takefumi Radha, were very uh, encouraging of me to, you know, uh, turn my dissertation into a book. So I had that idea in my mind from the very beginning. And the most, you know, like the simple reason for this was, like I said, that I wanted these stories to be heard. I just didn't want these stories to uh, just be, you know, be there and people don't read it. So it would have been like, because people were spending a lot of time and I was spending a lot of time on interviewing so many people and they were, you know, uh, trusting me. So I did know from the very beginning that I wanted to turn this into a book. And then coming back to how did I? come to write it. So, so um, like I also mentioned in my book that I was involved in the community events from very beginning of my time in the country. And over the years, I became well acquainted and also good friends with some long term Indian residents. But I never had a conversation on a deeper level about the Indian identity and uh, what it meant to them. And some of my relatives and friends uh, like, you know, uh, you probably would agree with this, like who settle in U.S. and U.K. and Canada, you know, these popular destinations, uh, they either consider themselves or aim to be the citizens of these countries. You know, like if they are going to these countries, the final uh, people do have like the Oh, we have to get the citizen of the citizenship of this country. And I wondered, uh, was it the same for Indian migrants in in Japan? And the desire to know more about the Indian community in Japan from a deeper perspective led me to investigate further. So, you know, like, again, like I've written in the book, that the idea of home is not just a place where we are born, but a place where we keep recreating home mm-hmm. as a space for recollecting the memories and experiences with that we treasure. So it is the home away from home that keeps us going by giving us an opportunity to, you know. Uh, just bring those memories together that we have left behind. So this book is basically a reflection of creation of that home by the members of the Indian community in Japan. And in reflecting that aspect, uh, the book dives into details of lives of Indians in Japan, the problems they face, their expectations as foreigners, efforts they make to maintain their identity, and aspects of their personality that are Japanese, and the challenges and opportunities with reference to their work so it basically maps the whole Indian community in Tokyo through this book yeah I mean the book basically maps the whole Indian community.
1: Thank you for sharing that I mean I think that 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 that, that, that theme that you mentioned about like trying to recreate home like um, in a foreign destination I think you sort of write it very well in the book and I really enjoyed that and it's it's a theme they can come back to um, later in the interview Um, yeah I I mean I
0: think I forgot to answer one more thing. You a question about my background as an Indian. How did it help oh, me? Oh yes. Yeah. So like, uh, so like my background um, and me being the member of the community. Of course, you know it helped me connect with the people uh, because I could understand them as I am also an Indian migrant. I was an Indian migrant in Tokyo, so so that could you know, like I could build that connect and it also helped me in a way with a fact check, you know, because sometimes when people are telling their stories, uh, there is always this fear that uh, if there is an exaggeration or, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, because of course, you know, you always check with the already existing data and everything, but because I was, uh, I had already been in the country for a very long time when I started this research and I've already experienced uh, or been connected to the community so it did help me uh, connect with people and to you know uh, understand their stories accurately and uh, but the challenge for me was to maintain a line between me as a researcher and me as a community member Uh, and uh, but I think I did well in maintaining that and I still do because I still am working on that subject from a different perspective And, uh, but for that, I think I would also like to give credit to my mentors uh, for that, you know, for helping me understand how I can maintain that distance, but also be a member of the community.
1: Thank you. I think you were very uniquely placed to do this research. Um, So I'm very happy that you um, did it. Um, and, and of course, like it's something I think that all researchers who do like ethnographic or anthropological work that they sort of have to sort of navigate sort of them, their own, you know, the, the, their own personal background while also making sure that they still are researchers. I mean, I think, yeah, yeah so I'm very happy that you got the support from your advisors to be able to do that. Um, so, I mean, I mean, actually, that's a very good question point to talk about the another question that i had which was um what was it like to research for this book what was your research methodology and what was your experience researching for this book
0: okay so um like you know like i mentioned that because i was a part of the community so i first started my interviews with the people that i knew and uh, then through their help i started connecting to more people and then the number kept on increasing from there. So I interviewed around 100 and that's Mm -hmm. actually an official count, but I'm sure I've actually spoken to uh, more people and uh, so I did interview people in Kobe and Osaka area as well uh, because I just wanted to get an idea because you know that's also a a very important uh, migrant place for the Indians and they have like a very long-term Indian community there. So um, and my main criteria was that even though uh, like that to have had a minimum five years in Japan, but uh, that didn't mean that I did not come talk to the newcomers. I was talking to the newcomers as well, but I was not uh, keeping them as my as my official count. And in the beginning uh, where I was allowed, I did audio and recorded interviews Uh, But later, uh, I also did videos. And uh, so it was like, you know, both uh, audio and video uh, interviews uh, in the later stage. And um, so my interviews lasted between one to two hours per sitting. Only in few cases, it was like less than one hour. But most of the interviews were like one to two hours per sitting. And with most people, I stayed in touch. And with few, I am still in touch. And, uh, but my longest interview was for five hours and, uh, in one sitting, in one sitting, it was like for five hours. And I was like, Oh my God, I have to transcribe this. <laughs> and for some people I had more than one sitting and this five hour long interview did not finish in five hours. I did go for another meeting with this person. <laughs> so, yeah, so I did have like, uh, with most people, I did have more than one sitting it was yeah in few cases it just finished in one sitting but in in some cases it went on and for many others because now i'm also making a documentary so oh
1: wow okay i
0: went back to them again to uh, take interviews so it's still going on
1: Thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, so uh, before we delve further in the, into the book, for those of our audience who are not familiar, uh, could you g- give some general information about the Indian community in Japan?
0: Okay, so because um, because we're talking more about the contemporary community, so maybe mm-hmm. let's start from the twentieth century, and uh, in the so like not twentieth century, twenty first century actually. Uh, but in 20th century, also, we did see, you know, uh, in uh, late late 20th century, we did see influx of the professional Indians. But the main influx started with the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, but we have been seeing an influx of professional Indian migrants into developed countries all over the world. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, Japan is no different. And in 2019, it was a little over 40,000 Indians in Japan. Uh, but due to COVID re-entry issues and entry ban, which I'm sure uh, everybody is aware of, the number has come down again. And people move from various parts of India, basically. like So the people that I was interviewing were from different parts of India and uh, different kinds of professions so even though we we uh, the people in the it professions are of course you know the number is a bit higher but there are people in all professions like uh, uh, they are working in different kinds of like consultancies or uh, and uh, like uh, big companies like amazon google and places like that in non it jobs as well in these companies mm-hmm. too So, and then people move, uh, sorry, uh, there are Indian associations that support these groups. And in the recent years, social media has been very helpful, especially, you know, in this time of COVID, uh, people have just been putting so much of information on social media to help each other and, uh, you know, give advice to each other. And so, uh, but the associations had been there from the past, but recently they are like more and, uh, but in general, it is uh, uh, like in the past, people used to also use uh, emails. They like, they had like groups, email Mm -hmm. groups, but now of course it's come on social media. So it's easier. And uh, uh, so these uh, social media becomes like a very uh, easy medium for people to connect. And then um, gender ratio, majority of these migrants are male. So 70% are male and 30% are females. And majority of these females are trailing spouse. Uh, that is, okay. they follow mm-hmm. their husbands to, uh, because either they got married to someone who was already living in Japan, or they married in India and the husband got an opportunity or a project moved to Japan and the husband was transferred. So the wife follows him. And there are also single women, uh, but uh, these single women, Uh, do not always stay longer and so they did not fit in my criteria of the long-term resident but I did meet a few women who did stay longer but by the time I finished my research now they are in different destinations because they have the pressure to get married and it's not easy to find a spouse in Japan or a spouse who would move for you in Japan at least not as of now Uh, there are just a handful of women who were followed by their husbands
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. and uh, so these but single women uh, there are few but eventually I've seen this trend like because of marriage they move elsewhere Uh, uh, but they come and then they go in less than five years or something like that but you know like now as the community is increasing maybe they will be able to find people or date people within their community so things might change and then uh, Tokyo has maximum number of Indian migrants And it's around a little more than 10,000. And then Tokyo, there is a ward, uh, which is called Edogawa Ward, like Edogawa City.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: um, so Edogawa City has around around 5,000 Indian migrants residing. And uh, in that city, Edogawa City, there is like a smaller town, which is called Nishikasai. And this town is also referred to as Little India. And so this Edogawa City has Indian temple, Indian schools, cultural center, and the network of the community in this area is very strong. And um, so, yeah, and there is a reason why the network of the area is very strong, uh, uh, would the readers like to read, or would you like me to tell? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you, you could mention it, yeah.
0: Please. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so the Edogawa City, like in this Nishikasai, there was this old stair, and in the in the you know, like uh, uh, when these professional Indians were moving to Japan, they were not able to rent houses, and this long-term Indian resident helped these people. To uh, move the houses, and they built up this organization that later became, uh, you know, one of the organizations to help the new migrants settle in the country. So that's the reason why you know one of the reasons where it started. But then there were many other reasons, like people were able to find uh, better facilities in that area for staying and then the school opened in that area the temple people got the land in that area so like there were many combining factors and mm-hmm. they they brought all together edogawa became like one of the popular places for the indians to move with nishikasai being the most uh, one of the popular uh, towns in the edogawa city Nishikasai, Kasai, Funabori. Uh, these are like, you know, towns, uh, cities, yeah, towns in the Edogawa city, which are popular spots for the Indian community people.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Um, so, I, mean, I yeah, I mean, it's it sounds like um, the Indian community or in Japan is sort of a product of like the g- general migration of Indians abroad, like outside India to different places. So you can sort of Place them within that those flows, and there's a floating population that there are people who live in Japan for a while, and then they might move elsewhere, or people who lived elsewhere who move uh, to Japan. Um, and as you mentioned, like it's really interesting to hear about the concentration of Indians in the Nishi Kasai um, area. Yeah,
0: yeah, I have seen like uh, usually when people are single, uh, they are they are not considered. They don't. Uh, they just live any. Place they want to in Tokyo, but uh, Tokyo. But when they get married, and especially when they have kids, they want to move closer to the community.
1: Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm.
0: that's where uh, Edogawa City or Nishikasai, Funabori, all these towns come into mind, and people start looking in these areas. So you see a lot of Indian families living in
1: these areas. I see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess now we can move to sort of going through some of the, the introduction and chapters of the book. Um, so in the introduction, you provide an outline of modern India-Japan connections and note an increase as we were just speaking about the number of Indians living in Japan. So, of course, there, there's been an exception to that trend, like in the period of the financial crisis and the um, nuclear meltdown and uh, in 2011, like earthquake, tsunami and nuclear meltdown. Um, And then, of course, right now, again, with COVID. um, But in general, like in the last 30 years, there's been an increase in the number of Indians in Japan. So um, what are the factors you think um, or, or what are the changes that have taken place in India, Japan and the world leading to this increase in the number of Indians in Japan?
0: okay so uh, like if we go back in history like a little over 100 years we see like you know like uh, in india migrating to another place like it had a very negative notion and it was mm-hmm. mostly uh, under compulsion you know uh, and that you know like people would think and the main factor in that time was economic reason mm-hmm. but today people also want to go out like you know just to have an experience expand their horizons people take pride in migrating And also like when a non-resident Indian today, when they go back, they get like so much of importance. So this idea of migration has in itself changed Mm -hmm. in in India or for Indians, you know. So but another perspective is like India is producing many IT freshers and also Mm -hmm. like other other professions. And there is a lot of uh, demand for them abroad. And if people find better opportunities and if their circumstances allow, they take up those opportunities and they move to other countries. And some people are actually consciously also looking, like I mentioned, because they want to experience. And there is this very uh, interesting notion people have about the non-resident Indians or people living abroad, which is very fascinating. And there are people, just because they get fascinated with this idea, they like to go and look for opportunities abroad. So that, that mindset has changed over the mm-hmm. years. And uh, then in the past years, immigration policies have also changed for the historical popular countries. And at the same, but uh, so, and uh, on the parallel to that, we see like a lot of Modi-Abe friendship hype uh, that we see in the Indian media and uh, that, that has brought Japan into notice of people, you know. And, And people from India do consider now, like in my time and even the time before me, Japan was like, it was used to be like, uh, who goes to Japan? Why did you learn Japanese language, you know? But now there is a lot of awareness and more and more people know and they want to, uh, maybe in Pune it's a different scene because uh, they have like, you know, uh, Japanese language schools. Delhi also they had, but they did not have as many as they have now. And also like schools have started, Japanese language schools. So like, you know, the atmosphere, such a a thing has been created that Japan is also becoming like a dream country for some people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but just to add on at the moment due to COVID restrictions, it is taking a turn. Uh, But uh, I don't know, like, you know, if I can say that it has left a scar at the moment. And I am not sure that if this is going to be a long term or only temporary, because what I saw during the 2011, uh, that whole thing was very temporary. From 2012, Mm -hmm. people started increasing. So I do think people will forget and move on. But there will be people who would have suffered a lot because of this whole situation. For them, maybe the scar would be deep and they might not... Or they might change their path. Some people have already changed their path. So, so sorry, I'm taking the, you know, it's going in a different direction. But uh, the I mean, like, the answer is going slightly in a different direction. But because of the COVID, you know, it's like a mixed thing. So, but I think, again, that a trend for moving to Japan will come back.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I I do think at least for those who haven't experienced whatever is happening at the moment or those, you know, people who are not waiting or, are not scarred. So, yeah.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Um, so it, it remains to be seen whether the current COVID uh, restrictions will, will be as temporary as what happened during the financial crisis or during the 2011 crisis or whether uh, the, the trend will will continue but as you you seem to suggest that probably for those who don't suffer currently like they might sort of decide more Indians might um, decide to uh, move to Japan um, in larger I think Yeah.
0: yeah I think if people have choices then probably they will change their path but if they don't uh, so, yeah, it's just a question of will they go with the same feeling or will the feelings change? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: And then eventually people heal and, you know, the scar might just heal and people might forget or uh, not forget, but maybe forgive, you know. So let's see how it turns turns mm-hmm.
1: out. So in the introduction and also in chapter two, um, you make this very interesting point um, that Indians living in Japan, like they of identify as Indian more than their specific linguistic group or religious group uh, or ethnic group or caste or whatever. So could you tell us a little more about this?
0: So, uh, yeah, because, you know, so like it, it's a well-known fact that, you know, there is a great diversity among members of Indian community abroad. And when I was uh, doing this research, there was this question, like how do you define Indian? And because they're like, you know, they're so diverse. And then uh during my research, I figured out like with not so many Indians living in Japan, they attach importance to their country of origin and considering it a base of their Indian identity. And But yet at the same time, they are also seeing links stress on their religion, region, language, food, and variety of other elements related to identity depending on uh, you know situation and occasion uh, but the expression that you know I am Indian was more commonly used during the interviews surpassing the expression such as I'm sick or Bengali or Muslim and so on mm-hmm. and then they were like you know people when uh, when uh, I was interviewing and they were like you know when we first moved to Japan they were so less Indians that uh, we were our focus was if we see an Indian people, oh, this is an Indian people, we are so happy to meet this person. And then when we settle down and our circle is increasing and then we will look into, okay, where is the Sikh community? Where is the Bengali community? Where is the Muslim community? Eventually, you know, to celebrate their own particular festivals, they obviously follow their own religion, region and language, language especially for their kids. But overall, because the number of Indian is less, uh, the Indian identity factor becomes very important because even in the festivals, like if you just limit it to your group of people, then sometimes they cannot cover the cost. So for that as well, they try to be very inclusive of all the other community members. But I uh, feel like, you know, as the number increases, then maybe, you know, uh, the, uh, they will lay more stress on their individual uh, identities But that will take very long. Mm -hmm. It's not Mm -hmm. like it's happening anytime soon. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, they can't reach the number of uh, Indians in America anytime soon. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. So, yeah, basically, yeah. So the number plays a role in that.
1: Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the Indian community in Japan is very unique uh, in that regard but because it, it's so small, uh, especially in compared maybe to the UK or the US, um, that um, the that, that identity of being an Indian sort of overshadows everything else. But I, I mean, of, of course, as you, as you mentioned, like the uh, in specific cases to like the religious identity or linguistic identity sort of is also important. It's sort of, it's interesting how it sort of combines and intersects uh, with the um, Indian um, in, with the Indian identity. Um, so um, you also I mean I, I think this is a, this is a topic that we've already discussed a little bit about about the backgrounds of Indians. Um, so what categories do you use to classify the Indian community and what careers and professions do most of them follow? So As you mentioned that some of them are in like working in companies or like you know in the private sector in the corporate sector, but are there Indians from other backgrounds who live in Japan too?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, like, like I mentioned before, like my main criteria was the number of years in Japan. I was focusing mm-hmm. on long stairs but of course, I was uh, yeah. Like the main focus was on long stairs and uh, and those who have been in Japan for more than five years. So, two main categories were men single and married working as professionals in international or Japanese companies, and those who own their own business or are employed in an indian concern mm-hmm. and the second category was that of indian women and these also included both married and single women so married women both working and housewives and single uh, women of course working women and then majority of my respondents were couples with or without kids and i think it is fair to say because uh, that these are you know the families that play important role in forming the indian community structure Because it is for these families, especially the next generation, that efforts were made to create this whole home away from home. So, yeah, these couples and, you know, uh, they form the main uh, respondent list with or without kids, of course. Yeah. Oh, sorry, and the uh, so you asked me. I thought I just covered everything. Uh, The second part was about the what careers and professions they follow, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the careers and professions, like they work in different, all different kinds of companies, like I mentioned, like you know, professionals uh, in international and Japanese companies, and uh, even before, like I mentioned, they're not just uh, only IT people. They are different kinds the category that I did not cover was the Indian cooks
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: and I did not talk about the Indian cooks because I did start interviewing them at the early stage of my research but then I realized that these uh, even though are a part of the Indian community are not technically part of the Indian community because they are they participate in the events only as cooks you know and their jobs are so busy they work like from morning till night and they don't have like a social they don't socialize outside their cook colleagues
1: you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: so that's why I did not uh, mix them with that but then later in 2017 I started a separate research on Indian cooks in Japan uh, about which I've written an article as well so so yeah but that's the only uh, one of the uh, main things that I excluded in this book because I didn't want I wanted to give them like a separate attention
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I can imagine that um, sort of conceptually, you'd sort of have to deal with um, the the Indians are sort of working in like more uh, in in like the restaurant industry or in uh, as cooks and so on, in 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 differently from those who are like working in more white collar professions in companies and. Okay. So thank you for sharing that. Um, So, you know, also you mentioned um, a, a, a right now about like the women. And of course, you, this is something you talked about before about the ways in which they sort of end up. Like most of them are sort of trailing spouses um, who sort of follow their um, husbands. So um, what is it like for these Indian women to live in Japan um, and... Uh, so you you discuss like their domestic lives their lives in the workplace so what sort of challenges do they face living in japan but also what sorts of opportunities do they find uh, living in japan um, for themselves and for their families
0: so um, so the majority of the indian women they move to japan after marriage like i mentioned and uh, because they were married to someone who found a job in japan or was transferred to japan or uh, you know, somebody who was already living in Japan. And there are a few who are followed by their husbands, but uh, they are also single women. Uh, but because I was looking into long-term stays, so these single women in the category were not many. And those that I was interviewing by the end of my research got married and moved elsewhere or back to India where they probably got married. So these days as number of Indians are increasing, like I mentioned, like you know, there is a possibility that you know uh, they can find spouse uh, eventually, and uh, but at the moment, it's not a very popular thing that you can easily find someone if you're single within Japan, unless you want to date internationally. And then because the trailing spouse uh, were the majority of my respondents, uh, I'll focus on their challenges and opportunities. So most of those that i spoke to had university degree and some also had master's degree and a few had phd but uh, most of them in fact all of them had issues finding jobs for themselves so these women uh, some of them were actually working in India before they moved to Japan, and uh, they had like good positions. At least those that I spoke to. There were few who were not working, who were house uh, like, who were like you know, uh, they just finished their education and they got married, or they didn't have enough. Uh, they, their families were not very open for them to work or for other things. But there were many who were actually working that I spoke to, and they had to leave behind the good jobs. And uh, then when they came to Japan, the initial years for them were very difficult because one, they did not know the language, they felt very lonely because uh, their husbands would go to work and they'll be home alone all the time. And so then uh, either some of them decided that, okay, let's just have a kid because we have to eventually start a family. So because I'm not able to find a job, I'll just, you know, uh, make a logical decision and start a family. And then some start a family and then uh, later on after the kids grow up, they still have this urge to work. And also their urge to work comes from the fact that they need to support their family Mm -hmm. and they want to send their kids to a good school or they want to support their families back home. So economically, they have this urge, like they want to do something. And some also feel genuinely that they are losing confidence and, you know, they're becoming just like a very... Uh, stressed out person so they need to do something for themselves to grow and uh, so then some of these women this is one of the most popular things that happens like they take an extra degree and move towards the teaching line or they study japanese and then find themselves jobs but if their kids are young uh, and even if they do find themselves job in the professional arena like you know it uh, Many of them do end up leaving them because the working hours are very long and it's very difficult for them to to manage both. But some of them are lucky that they have like good, uh, they, they find good companies where the working hours are not long or they can work from home and they, they can figure things out. But that's a very a few cases. It's like the percentage is very low, but the majority move into the teaching line. They mm-hmm. either go to Indian schools or they will teach English in conversational schools or they work as ALT in the public schools. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, so th- this one, this path is the most common, and um, so yeah, that's basically like oh yeah. And then there are also those who start their own businesses sometimes. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And like small scale businesses, uh, like because they start catering. For example, there are many vegetarians in the Indian community so they can make vegetarian bento's for the bachelors or they can just make vegetarian bento's for the families because sometimes the women don't want to they are working and they don't want to cook when they come from after a long day at work or they can make special delicacies like you know like special indian sweets that can then that you cannot easily find uh, in japan so these kind of things or they also like there is one uh, uh, woman that i met she makes eggless cakes because in India, we have this concept of eating eggless cakes, which is not very popular abroad. So you can't find eggless cakes easily. Uh, it's like not easily. It's, I, I, don't, I don't even know if they're available in Japan. So, uh, so this woman, she makes eggless cakes for these uh, Indian community people, especially mm-hmm. the Jain community, the, uh, those who don't completely. eat eggs. So they find their niche in some way or the other and uh, but then they have to go through a lot of challenges you know and also they have to go through the challenge of convincing themselves that even though they come from a different uh, skill or qualification but moving to japan changes it for them they have to find their own niche so yeah that's a bit bigger challenge but i was uh, yeah i felt like uh, they they do find their way out eventually and then they are fine
1: Thank you for sharing that. So it sounds like the amongst in Indian women, like even though they might sort of not not necessarily um, sort of you know uh, choose to come to Japan, but um, but 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 when they do come to Japan, even if they have some challenges, they're very enterprising and they're able to find various ways to sort of you know have their own careers or sort of live like a meaningful and fulfilled life um, in Japan. So that that's really. Um, fascinating to hear. So, so thank you for sharing that. Um, so again, I'd, I'd like now like to move on to talking about something else you talk about in the book, which is uh, about the role of religion. Oh, it's also in the in the title of your book. Um, so you make an intriguing point that Indian migrants in Japan attempt to simultaneously integrate into Japanese society, even as they maintain. separate identity as Indians. Um, So what role do religion, places of worship and religious organizations play in Indian community life in Japan?
0: So uh, I think preserving their cultural traditions and passing them to the next generation becomes like one of the most vital tasks for the migrants. And uh, for the sake of which, they often become more religious than they probably were in the environment where religion defined everyday lifestyle. You know, like in India, especially, uh, everyday lifestyle connects you to religion in some way or the other. But when you move abroad, that is not how it is. So they want to transfer those values to their uh, own kids, you know, so that makes them sometimes they become a little more religious than they originally were. But on the other hand, there are also some that are influenced by their new environment and they become practical about it. Uh, but uh, like the book explains that how the Indian migrants have made efforts to create, um, uh, you know, temple, Hindu temple, Sikh Gurdwara, Jain temple. And it reflects that even after migration, the that the religion played a critical role in forming not just a place of worship, but also... More importantly, like a place where they can connect with other community members, Mm -hmm. where they can let their children connect with the members of the other, uh, with the kids of the other members. Or they have like active classes to teach kids the language or read Vedic books with them. Or, you know, like for the Sikh people, uh, they read the, you know, uh, they teach them Guru Mukhi and they, they read the holy book of the Sikh people. And then they also have, uh, it's the same for like, you know, the Muslims and Christians and Jain people. And, um, but at the same time, uh, you know, like they 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 develop and maintain their respective identities in their uh, best possible ways. But one of the most beautiful discoveries that I made in this process of visiting these temples and, you know, doing my ethnographic work there was that, Uh, this also plays a very important role in connecting the host and the migrants, that is the Japanese and the Indians. So what was fascinating for me was that religion is not a big thing amongst the Japanese people, Mm -hmm. but it's this, you know, uh, religion in a way that is connecting the two people. But that like, just like I said, you know, like for the Indian people also, this is a religious place, but it's just like one of the places where they want to connect with the community member and in doing so they have also created a place for themselves to connect with the host people also because they also get very fascinated by the Indian festivals and then they take part some Japanese people also help them organizing the festivals so so that's one of the most beautiful things that I saw that how it connects the two communities
1: Th- thank you for sharing that i mean yeah I mean, even in my experience in japan like even if the average japanese person is not very religious in the traditional sense but they sort of still have like some sort of interest in um you know in spirituality in visiting buddhist temples and shinto shrines um and that you know like the festivals like diwali and holi become opportunities for indians and japanese to interact with each other and for japanese to learn about uh, indian culture um, yeah
0: and also these places have like good delicious food so that is also an attraction
1: <laughs> oh yes absolutely like, absolutely um and i mean i've also heard of like you know like um, I, I i like indians who participate in like you know the japanese festival like i like um so that i mean that that's also a, a parallel yeah 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 yeah, yeah
0: that is also there yeah like we have like omikoshi like i have also participated a couple of times in uh, I think I've done it seven or eight times.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, okay.
0: So like, uh, yeah, Omikoshi, like my dentist used to invite me. So I used to go there every year to participate. It's it's really nice because we also have that, you know, Ganpati Puja. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Where
0: we do the, you know, like uh, Omikoshi kind of a thing. Where we just uh, keep the... And even in Sikhism, they have like before Guru Nanak's birthday, they do like around the streets, they put the holy book on their shoulders and then they just take rounds and do the chanting in the morning so yeah so that's a yeah there's like both of them they take by and even like uh, including myself many Indian people who actually don't live closer to the temple or did not because the temples came later you know Mm -hmm. so then when they were uh, who had moved to Japan before the temples actually came or they were the temples were actually made uh, they used to find peace visiting these uh, shrines and, you know, with uh, these temples in Japan. Or I also used to go to the church sometimes because, uh, you know, you feel that connect. And it's nice to, to feel that way, you know, like it's just like nice. You make you it makes you feel at home sometimes. So, so, yeah. So the Indian people do go to and everybody, I think the Japanese temples, the architect wise also, they're like so so beautiful. The the architecture is so beautiful. So people anyways would love to visit them. Same is for the Indian temples
1: thank you I, I mean another interesting thing which is of course this is com- not not related to your book um, but of course like the, some of the japanese like the buddhist temples you might even find some icons who are like similar to like the indian or hindu gods so that's that's very really fascinating um, too. so maybe somebody else can write a book about connections between in, in I indian think, and yeah, japanese yeah, there are religion. there are scholars
0: who have worked on it uh, but maybe the information is in japanese but
1: i see okay 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 yeah. i see mm-hmm.
0: But yeah, there are scholars because I I did meet a few scholars who actually did tell me about these things and they told me the names and everything. So I have them written somewhere.
1: Okay. (laughs) But I
0: never went deeper, deep into it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like there's a lot of avenues for more research, for connections between um, India and Japan. Definitely. Definitely. So in chapter four, uh, you showcase some fascinating case studies of some Indian migrants in Japan who've been successful in various fields, um, including even as in the field of politics. Um, so most of our listeners are probably n- have never heard or are not familiar with some of the unique like case studies you mentioned in chapter four, like you talk about Chandru Advani, Yogendra Puranik, and Anshul Chauhan. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about these three individuals and some of the other Indians who succeeded in japan or who've been, you know who've sort of been able to sort of make a mark in japanese society today
0: i think each uh, individual has uh, made their mark in uh, whatever way they can uh, but of course uh, these three people do uh, have a lot of attention in my book uh, because they became like you know you uh, uh, gain the puranic and anshul johan became public figures so yeah because of that reason um uh, i gave like a special you know like i write a lot about them and uh chandru uncle i because he was the longest living indian in japan and uh, he was from sindh province that became part of pakistan after division and uh, he was there for 65 years and oh, wow. mm-hmm. and and now he he's passed away so so, yeah, so 65 years he lived in Japan and he had an Indian passport. I see. So he moved to uh, to Japan for economic crisis because India after partition, you know, like there were not many opportunities there. So his journey to Japan was on British ship from Bombay to Yokohama and it took 45 days. So he moved in 1953 and he worked for a trading company with an Indian owner and uh, long story short that he started his own company after a few years, like I think 1959, he started his own company and after, um, and he, but like, you know, in my conversations with him, he would often show gratitude towards the, the Japanese people. And he would always say that he has received a lot of support and trust from the Japanese people because of which his business flourished. So, and, um, So the most striking conversation I had with him was about his passport, because I was very fascinated that he's in Japan for 65 years, but he still has an Indian passport. So then I asked him, like, uncle, don't you want to change your passport? And he jokingly used to say that, you know, uh, you know, God has sent me with Indian passport. And if I change it, he will get confused when I go up. (laughs) So... I used to find it very funny but he was he loved Japan very much but he said like he also loves India even though he wasn't like in his later age when he got old he didn't get a chance to visit India so often but but he had this thing about India a lot he used to send me a lot of uh, news uh, articles both on Japan and India separately and about India Japan and then, uh, yeah, he, he was, he his knowledge about India, Japan was really rich. Like he was a, yeah, amazing. One of my best respondents, I would say, because there was so much to learn from him because of all these years that he had spent in Japan. And then we have uh, Mr. Yogendra Puranik. Uh, I also refer to him as Yogi-san. And so the person, he was the person of... Uh, uh, first person of Asian origin, who was elected as the city councillor in Edugawa Ward. And he visited Japan in 1997. And initially, a few times on scholarship in the beginning, in 1997, 1998. And then he found himself a job in 2001. And so he has worked for like various big companies. And his last job, uh, before he got into politics, was with Rakuten as vice president. And he narrates his journey of becoming a city councillor, which mainly was a result uh, from his strong desire to create a bridge between the local and the foreign community. And so like, you know, he was working since 2005 because he was a single parent and he was looking after his son. And like in that time, he also like, you know, was living away from the Edogawa area. But then because he was a single parent, he wanted to live closer to the Indian community. And then he got actively involved as a volunteer for the indian community and also in general foreign community so because his japanese was really good he would help the bridge the communication gap between the foreigners and the japanese community so i think it was uh, during that time he could also see the struggles of the foreigners and uh, so i believe like you know that was the inspirations that would have become stronger over the years and then he decided to get into Politics and be the part of the system create more awareness on both the sides. Mm-hmm. So, so in the book, I write a lot more about his journey of bringing up his kids and the challenges he faced uh, uh, in making choices of the schools and everything. So, so like that was also that is something that many uh, Indian parents can resonate, and it's also good for people who are actually planning to move to Japan to know these things in advance. That. These other things, and now many people have experience, you know. So you, people can learn from their experiences and do things accordingly. And then, lastly, Anshul Chauhan, he moved to Japan in 2011, and he moved here to work as an animator. So he had worked in India for around uh, five years. I'm just telling like a very briefly about these stories, but if you read their stories in detail, they're like very interesting. Their struggles and how they became actually who they are. So, and when he found an opportunity, he moved to Japan. So the initial years, he enjoyed his job and mentioned that working five hours, uh, like that his working hours were flexible. And then overall, he was fine. Uh, just that he felt at his job, like that the whole process of decision making was taking very long. Like, you know, it was very bureaucratic. For example, in India, we have like, you know, this Dugard kind of thing and decision making and Uh, issues at work or in assignments are comparatively fast and people discuss with each other. But he was like, in his case, like if there is an issue, they will tell it to the manager, the manager will go and have a meeting separately and then they will come back. So it was like, they were not included in all these discussions. Like they will just know what happens, what they have to do. So that felt like a little uh, stressful for people, uh, you know, like uh, in his position, and um, so in 2013, he moved back to India. And uh, because the reason was that he got very desperate to make a film. So he said, and he was like practicing using the camera while he was working in his, you know, like from 2011 to 12, 2013. And he was like, okay, I have money. Let me buy a camera and I'll practice. And he was making like uh, some short films and things like that. So when he got really desperate, he was like, he's going to go back to Baroda and he's going to make a film. But things didn't work out. And then he came back to Japan and then he was very depressed because actually he did make a movie. But uh, uh, like the topic was such that the police, you know, took all his videos and they just broke it away. So stuff happened. So then he wasn't able to finish the movie. So he went back to Japan and then uh, he, 2016, I think he just again held his camera and he was like, uh... but then eventually he did finish his first movie and it released in 2020. And now he's making his third movie. His second movie is brilliant. I really am not promoting his work or anything, but his movie is actually brilliant. And if the listeners do get a chance, I highly recommend watching his second movie, Kuntura. And um, uh, so he tells his struggle about being accepted, how hard it was for him to be accepted as a filmmaker in Japan because he was a foreigner and he was making Japanese movies. So it wasn't easy. And uh, so, you know, through these accomplished Indian migrants, we see... I mean, I would just like to mention here again as a disclaimer, I feel like all the migrants have accomplished something on their own, you know, Mm -hmm. like, so it doesn't matter. But because we are talking about these three people, uh, so we see like three different patterns, like, you know, Chandru uncle came uh, like on a ship 45 days. Now we are flying in eight hours, you know, from India. The journey is like, time is really short. So that's like one major, major change That comes, you know, and then um, and he came to work under Indian trader. Yogi-san found his way through scholarship and uh, because he was studying Japanese in India, too. And then we have Anshul-san, who came uh, as a well-paid animator, at a well-paid animator job. And these three patterns still exist, uh, just that people fly now. So, uh, and then Yogi-san is naturalized and holds a Japanese passport. Anshul-san is not inclined at the moment, and uh, but he's married to a Japanese. So, you know, these are the changing patterns. But it's not like they didn't exist at the time of Chandru Uncle. But it's just that people who would opt for or consider opting Japanese citizenships are comparatively more now. And uh, but still uh, not as many as one could see amongst the Indians in US, UK, even in Germany, actually, I see more people wanting to naturalize, uh, you know, so, yeah
1: thank you for sharing um, the the stories of these three unique uh, indian migrants um, and it's quite notable that now indians are even though like maybe people think of japan as being very insular and homogeneous and so on but you have an indian migrant who's succeeding in politics you have an indian migrant who's succeeding in filmmaking um, so that, that that's very uh, fascinating to hear and even for those who are like those of us who are interested in japan like maybe this is problem this is like some promising news maybe for, for how yeah, japan but, will be uh, yeah
0: but people those who are listening should also know it's a promising news but there, there it's it's a lot of hard work and it's yes. a lot of struggle a lot of challenges one has to go through
1: absolutely but i think
0: all good things you have to go through struggles and challenges you don't just get them easily
1: Absolutely. Um, So thank you for sharing that. Um, So I'd like to move towards sort of of talking about the end of the book. Um, So um, in the end of the book, you perceptively note that India-Japan relations are a paradox. On the one hand, there is no history or feeling of conflict between the two countries, Uh, but the relations have not been anything more than lukewarm. So how do you see India-Japan relations evolving in the future?
0: Okay, I hope I can be politically correct and answer this question. (laughs) So I think, uh, so politically, the relationship between the two countries seems to be going fine at the moment. And also on the surface, I don't see uh, like there are any issues or uh, the world is looking at India, you know, at the moment, and there is no way it can be ignored at this stage Mm -hmm. with how India is growing. And so... There are groups and associations also in the recent years that are making efforts to bridge the gap and create a lot of awareness. And think, uh, I think past couple of years, like Indian media has also been giving a lot of positive coverage of uh, to Japan uh, to the extent that they did not even talk about the grave issues the Indian migrants are facing or faced uh, due to the Japan's re-entry issues or the entry issues now. So uh, in India, the idea of Japan has always been glorified and due to the good political image, there is more spark being added to this glory by media. And it also, it now seems like to be on the map of people and young professionals who consider moving to Japan, uh, you know, before there were not many young professionals who even considered moving to Japan, but now it comes on their map, you know. Like I mentioned, like it is now like a dream country for a few people also schools have introduced language as one of the foreign languages many schools have Japanese language as a foreign language and so things seem to be moving in positive direction Uh, but there is still a lack of uh, awareness and that is for simple reason that most groups are promoting cultures like performances, arts, poetry, tea ceremony, dances and so on but no one is actually talking about the social issues you know like Mm -hmm. uh, Because when it comes to India, of course, we are all over the news. Anything happens in India, we are all over the news. And our own people are very bold. Like, you know, you see the Indian people also raising their voice or taking a stand if something goes wrong. And uh, because, uh, you know, like we have this, you know, like we feel like we want a better India. And uh, so we are always critical about our own country and culture. And uh, I mean, that's why our democracy... Uh, at least till now, uh, has been very powerful. And I cannot comment on uh, what will happen in the years ahead. But when it comes to Japan, the Indian media does not talk about the critical side of Japan as much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, Because that could also be, like I said, like people are very fascinated by the country, by its politeness, by its cleanliness, by the perfection, and the things that they actually lack in their own culture. So because they lack these things in their own culture, uh, they are focusing on the things that they can learn from Japan. So there is a lot of focus on, you know, in that sense, I mean, like, you know, there is a lot of glorifying of Japan in India. So, uh, so they can't even imagine uh, that Japan also has issues. Japan also has social problems. Like many scholars are, you know, like they, in Japanese studies, they reflect about so many things and uh, they write... But yeah, like I have not seen so much of coverage in the Indian media about these issues as much. And uh, yeah, I think yeah, I personally feel it's mainly because the people are more interested in what they can learn from Japan. So, but but that does not create awareness. So, but I do think like, you know, uh, in a way the, the relationship is evolving. It's uh, moving in the right direction, at least from the Indian side, yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, so, uh, yeah, 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 that, that's really interesting to hear that, like, um, Japan almost even today, like, it seems it's like some sort of model, maybe, or people see it in India as some sort of model. Um, so how do you see Japan as a destination for migrants you, from India and other countries in the future? Do you think that these migratory flows will continue? And do you think that, like Indians and other community, people from other parts of the world will continue immigrating to Japan?
0: This is a very wrong time to ask me this question, but I'll try to be very neutral. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, so like, you know, like, let's just pick up a quote from my book. That um, in my book, I mentioned, you know, like it might help to view Japan as a wealthy husband mm-hmm. who is keen on providing his wife with all her heart's desires and yet at the same time makes great demands of her, urging her to be patient and understanding and to accept manifold expressions of love. And some might be able to stay in this marriage. But many others might want to walk out Mm -hmm. if they have a better option, you know, like if they find an option where there is more acceptance. And um, so Japan is a wonderful place. And I think I will give 100 points in terms of safety, convenience, cleanliness. But then if we uh, look at the policies towards the, you know, like the migrants and how things have been basically during the pandemic, where they have clearly differentiated between the foreign residents and the Japanese. And also, you know, like the core issue of how the Japanese workplaces perceive the idea of diversity. You know, like the idea of diversity is uh, to be diverse. You know, it is not like the you hire someone and you expect them to be like you. It's like meeting halfway through, but meeting halfway through doesn't happen. It's like more expectations from the foreigners to be mm-hmm. In a certain way so uh, these things make me wonder uh, but if uh, you know like if it would be like because of these issues I sometimes wonder that will it be so-called popular destination ever you know people are fascinated by it of course you know and there are uh, people who have an exposure to, J- to Japan in some way or the other like I had through my grandmother I'm sure you have your own story to tell uh, about your connection to, you know, Japanese studies or people learn the language for some reason or the other. So there is some kind of fascination, of course, you know, the company has. We can't deny that. And it's like so safe, convenient and clean. And it pampers you so much in so many ways. But... uh, yeah. So, but I'm yeah, but I'm not sure if it will be a popular destination. It could be, uh, for some people on their map. But people might want to go and travel there. But I am not sure. Like, uh, uh, if people, I do think people will forget what happened in the pandemic, and then maybe things will be different
1: thank you um so yeah sorry if i sounded
0: i didn't want to sound negative
1: Uh, oh no 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 that's a problem (laughs) thank you i think Uh,
0: yeah i mean it's just like it differs from person to person like how they personally feel what are their their choices what are their preferences do they want Yeah, safety, convenience, cleanliness, or they want more of inclusion in the society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like uh, on an interesting note, like, for example, I speak to many Indian people in the community and then they look at it at uh, exclusion. They look at exclusion from a very positive light as well. Because they feel like they can keep the Indian identity for the kids, kids, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because if what happens in in U.S. and U.K., it's like they become like, you know, they become Americans or they become British. And then they eventually the Indian values uh, become weaker, which doesn't uh, which the Japanese, the Indian parents in Japan felt was like an advantage in Japan because uh, they are not included in the society so much. So that keeps their Indian identity strong. So it's a perspective to see how and what people want or what migrants want. And they can choose their destination accordingly.
1: Yeah, it remains to be seen. It will be interesting to see how Japan competes for human resources from different parts of the world, because countries like the US or Canada have longer histories of um, large communities migrating there uh, and of course since Japan is facing a declining population it remains. To, we'll have to see in the coming years and decades how Japan sort of deals with that and also with probably being a destination for uh, migrants um, so, so thank you Mega, for taking so much time of, out of your busy schedule to talk to me today um, so before we conclude could you tell us what you are working on right now
0: So Yeah, right now uh, I am in Berlin with Free University of Berlin and I came here for a project and it's called QUAMAFA qualification and skill in migration process of foreign workers in Asia and it's a four-year collaborative project and it looks into aspects of qualifications and skills in process of migration and uh, so this project is basically a brainchild of five women me and four other uh, girls scholars and uh, we uh, f- and we use our regional expertise and academic uh, experiences and mixed method approach to investigate the role of skills in uh, in labor migration in major migrant receiving uh, market economies in you know east asia or southeast asia okay. so uh, you can check our website it's uh, www q u a m a f a dot d e so i can briefly also mention what i actually do on this project uh, so in so oh sorry and also most important thing is that this is funded by the federal ministry of education and research in germany and it started in march 2021 cool. and we all you know joined together from different parts of the world and so uh, In for my particular role, I would be, uh, my project would investigate the experience of skilled Indian migrants uh, working in different companies and professions in Japan. And in addition, it examines the hiring process through interviews and agency staff in Japan and India who are involved in supporting the new graduates and Indian professionals as they move to Japan and uh, i also dive deeper into the structural changes and the stability or instability in migration trends of indians to japan and to sorry to what extent their fairy tale image of japan actually matches the reality leading to a happy migratory experience or does it turn out to be close to a nightmare leaving them questioning the choice of migration destination so this project uh, uh, my share will be conducted, uh, we will all be conducting it for four years. So, but I use the visual ethnographic methods, so involving live history interviewing yeah. with Indian migrants and the agencies, and the fieldwork will be conducted in yeah. Tokyo and its vicinity, if I am allowed inside the country, and in India, where the region covered will be Delhi, Gurgaon, Chennai, Pune, and Bangalore. Yes, but do check out our website. It's www.quamafa.de. And you can also read about my amazing group of scholars who are also doing really nice work on migration.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. That sounds like a really fascinating and promising project. um, And we wish you all the best. um, And uh, I I look forward to following your work in the future. Thank you so Um, much. Thank you so much, Megha. um, And I hope you have a good evening.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely talking to you. And uh, yes, take care. Have a nice evening yourself.
1: Thank you.